Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we explore the pioneers of black television, including the hosts and entertainers throughout the early 20th century. Awesome. Glad to be here again with you, Dad. It's always good to be with you, Papa. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that um, have crossed my mind. I was thinking about the role of Black performers, entertainers on television. I know we had talked about the Ed Sullivan Show and how important the Ed Sullivan Show was in showcasing uh, Black talent in the early days of radio. Right. But there's also another area of black entertainment, and that is the people who were actually the hosts of television programs who were black. And most people, when they think about the first black host of a television program, those who know about that would say, well, that must have been Nat King Cole. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, Nat King Cole was major. I mean, he was huge, huge. And a lot of people lamented the fact that he even went into singing, he was popular music and that sort of thing, because he was an incredible, an absolutely incredible piano player, technique. And I mean, he was just incredible. And he was also pioneering in that trio format, the Nat King Cole Trio. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were just blazing the whole territory uh, across the across the United States. But the point is, is that he was certainly an important role model for a lot of entertainers to have their own television programs and so forth. But he was not the first one to do that. Who was? Well, <laughs> that's that's debatable. But one of the things that I became aware of is that there was a program called Harlem Jubilee. Actually, it went by several different names at different times. One of them was called uh, Uptown Jubilee. Another one was the Harlem Jubilee. And then the last iteration of this was called Sugar Hill Times. And I remembered Sugar Hill Times because we were talking about Harry Belafonte. And I somewhere in my memory, I said, but he was in a program in the late 1940s called Sugar Hill Times. And what I discovered is that the, the program itself was a half hour program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it did. It was short lived. It didn't. It didn't last that long. It went from about September to October of 1949 on CBS. And, and Harry Belafonte was the host, or he was just featured on. He was one of the performers on that on that program. Mm-hmm. It was Harry Belafonte. It was a guy called Willie Bryant, who was a sort of an impresario in Harlem. Maxine Sullivan, someone that your grandfather used to like, a, a comedian by the name of Timmy Rogers. He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> He'd be on the Ed Sullivan show later on in the 60s and all, you know, doing that routine. You couldn't believe what he was saying. He'd say, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Timmy Rogers. And uh, let's see, Don Redman, incredible jazz uh, musician and his orchestra. The Jubileers, you know, group of singers. So it was, it was a, a very festive and I think it was a good program. But it was up against the competition, which was Milton Berle's Texaco Star Theater. And Milton Berle, they, that's why they called him Mr. Television. I mean, he just dominated, dominated television those early days in the 40s. Yeah. So them going up against Milton Berle didn't, didn't fare well. And so they ended that program. Hmm. So to say that they were kind of collectively the host of, of the show, all right, that, that was in 1949. 
Mm-hmm. Now, not too long after that, there was a summer program that aired. It was called the Hazel Scott Show. Hazel Scott. Hazel Scott is she was an incredible pianist. I mean, the, the, the classical train, the, she could play blues, she could play up-tempo jazz, she could play boogie-woogie, stride piano. There's a, there's a film wow. clip of her doing a song called Taking a Chance on Love. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was one of those film sequences where most of the film was built around white characters and, and, and the storyline and so forth was around mm-hmm. them. But they would have an insert where they would have the black performer and they would entertain and so forth. But if they brought that film to the South and played it in the South, the Southern movie houses could remove that part with the black uh-huh. entertainers in it, you know, so as not to offend their clientele and so forth. <laughs> you know. Wow, that's um, wild. Yeah, yeah. I just happened to look up Hazel Scott, too. She's born in Trinidad and Tobago, which is cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she also eventually married Adam Clayton Powell. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so married to a politician. So that that must have been quite a situation. But she was also caught up for a minute in the whole McCarthy Red Scare era, you know, when people were being blacklisted left and right. Paul Robeson. Like Paul Robeson. Yeah, going yeah. back to that again. Those were those were scary times. Vigilance is important because those times can easily return under one guise or another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so we always have to be vigilant of that. But anyway, she had her show and it was it was, as I said, was short lived. But so she was the first as as a individual host. She was probably the first. Yeah. And then we have, of course, Billy Daniels. Mm-hmm. Billy Daniels, you know that old black magic. That was his his big uh, big hit. And that was a it was a black dude who did that song. Yeah, he did that song. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that old black magic. Yeah, and your spell. Now, he, yeah, I, I always thought that was a, a like it sounded like some like like Dean Martin or something like that. Right. <laughs> I had no yeah. idea that was a black guy. Well, because he was performing though that song in these nightclubs in New York. He was performing on 52nd Street, you know. Integrated nightclubs or? I don't know if he was necessarily the first, Mm. but he was one of the early pioneers to cross over into mainstream. So he he was probably early in on that, on that, you know, being a pioneer in some of those venues. Yeah. So, yeah, Billy Daniels had the Billy Daniels show. And and by the way, prior to that, you know, he he had also played with uh, Charlie Parker on 52nd Street, just as Charlie Parker uh, they backed up Harry Belafonte on his first professional gig. I think Lester <laughs> Everybody Young, was all in the mix together. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, all these guys, Lester Young was really supportive of Harry Belafonte. Mm. Very supportive of him. They, they, had, they got along really well. And, uh, but I think it, on one particular gig, it was uh, Charlie Parker who backed up Harry Belafonte singing. So it, what I'm saying is, is that these mix of entertainers and pioneers and so forth were interacting with each other in all kinds of venues. Mm-hmm. So Billy Daniels has has his thing going. Even Nat King Cole backed up Billy Daniels <laughs> back in the day. Wow. So then, then of course, you know, you talk about Nat King Cole. And mm-hmm. so his program starts in, in uh, 1956. And he's got everybody who's anybody. I mean, from Tony Bennett 
to Ella Fitzgerald, Eartha Kitt, Peggy Lee, Mel Torme, Frankie Lane, all these great entertainers were just more than happy to be on Nat's show, you yeah. know, to support him. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great uh, thing with Harry Belafonte and they're doing a Calypso number together. <laughs> and, and your grandparents used to sing that song, particularly your grandfather. Um, mama, uh, look a boo boo day. That is your daddy. Oh no, my daddy can be ugly, so shut your mouth, go away. Mama, look a boo boo day. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know. I mean, all those island songs, just it's all just great vibes and there's a, there's so much humor in it too oh yeah oh yeah well the one of the inspirations for for people in the jazz field sonny rollins did a song called saint thomas right because he has roots in saint thomas you know and he himself was inspired by people like the duke of iron mm. the duke of iron yeah and he also has songs like Island Lady, too. Or mm -hmm, just, yeah, mm -hmm. He's always referencing going back, yeah. Yeah, Island in the Sun and, mm -hmm. you know, songs like that. So then you had not only Nat King Cole, and that show ran until 1957. Again, it was short-lived. It was tough getting sponsors. At one point, he said he thought that Madison Avenue was afraid of the dark after the show ended. Yeah. Uh, so he just not getting and part part of the problem with some of these shows not not lasting that long was was getting the sponsorship to continue to support them. Mm -hmm. Now, there was another entertainer. She was also a pianist and vocalist, just like Nat. And her name was Hatta Brooks. And she had a show in Los Angeles in 1957. Wow. Uh, and so she had the Hatta Brooks show. Wow. Now, a lot of people don't know the presence of these black entertainers on television. I you know, no the idea. golden age, as as it were. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge who, who they were, the, these people who helped open up doors and opportunity and so forth. And Hatta Brooks was known as the queen of the boogie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she would play boogie-woogie music and people would just turn their heads like they couldn't believe. I mean, she was just absolutely incredible. I mean, it makes sense that there's so many people who've helped to pioneer and break down these walls as Black entertainers on television. Because if I were just trying to go off what I know, I would think that Nat King Cole was probably the first, and then mm -hmm. there was Flip Wilson, then you had Richard Pryor, and then you had Arsenio Hall, and then Dave Chappelle. Like, like I wouldn't think that there's all these other folks whose names have kind of been swept under the rug or yes. just not as championed as they should be. And you're right about that. What's also um, interesting is that the, the whole phenomena, you know, of how you take your rightful place in society, that your talent is recognized for who you are. And when we think about Hollywood, for example, you know, a lot of people in order to get in, to be accepted by the population, some of them had to change their names or their names were changed for them. Well, right. you don't sound, that sounds too, quote unquote, ethnic. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're black, you, for the most part, you can't change, although some people did pass. Some people decided to go on the other side. Right. Other people said, I look this way, but you know what? I am who I am. Now, there have been, there've been films that have dealt with this this whole situation, films like Imitation of Life, right? Oh, yeah. That's the one with the mom comes to get her daughter out of the school? Yes, yes. Yeah, remember, yeah. yeah. that's the only part about that that I remember. Louise Beavers played the mama on that. Wow. But the point I'm making in terms of television is that if you're light complexion, you know, you tend to get in. 
but there's still obstacles and things that were challenged for them, regardless of whether they were lighter or darker than others. So circling back to the idea of changing your name, if you were Jewish descent coming from Europe and you're rising up and you want to become a well-known actor, well, maybe you should change your name from Emmanuel Goldenberg and maybe you become Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> maybe yeah. if you're if you're coming from the Bronx, you have a Bronx accent and, and your name is uh, Bernard Schwartz. Your name is now Tony Curtis. Wow. Maybe if your name is Marion Morrison, that doesn't sound quite maybe to some people macho enough. So we'll call you John Wayne. <laughs> I mean, the, the list goes on. And if your name is Herman Blount Jr., hmm, well, kids call you Junior and everything. Yeah. Well, they call you Sonny. So you become Sun Ra. Right. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you take on another persona. You know, yeah. this idea of changing, changing your name. Of course, we talk about the Nation of Islam, talk about Elijah Poole. Uh, we talk about uh, individuals, you know, of course, Malcolm X, you know. I mean, and then it gets, you know. El Haj Malik El Shabazz or, mm -hmm. you know, Cassius Clay. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One Night in Miami, yeah. you know, transforms into Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. And the pushback that you also get because you're accepted as one thing, but now you have this sense of self-agency and you want to define yourself, you know, in your own terms. Right. And like Ramon Estevez did and Carlos Estevez did. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Martin Sheen and Charlie Sheen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what? Sheen? What? Yeah. <laughs> Emilio held it down though. Emilio held it down. That's right. He did. He did. <laughs> Now, that brings then to mind this idea of how one gets in, how, how you find acceptance in the choices people make. I remember when I used to go with your grandmother, when she would get her hair done, we'd go to a place um, near 145th Street called Landeros. Landeros was a beauty shop, and on the walls, you could see the hairstyles, women as well as men, and the men's hair would be processed, they'd be Conked and yeah, yeah, you know, slicked back and mm -hmm. you know, fried, dyed, and laid to the side. Was, yeah, they put lye in it and all that stuff. <laughs> that's right, that's yeah. right. And they wear these do rags, the right? old school do rag, though. Where you wrap oh, old school, car. that's right, uh, coming up just like you see with the temptations in the, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the early to mid 60s. You know, it wasn't the new school ones with the, the cape in the back. The it cape in the back, the back you know? nah, it wasn't like, that like, one. Yeah. It was like Prince's do-rag, like the, the do-rag Prince would wear. Exactly. So, so the idea, though, was that Madam C.J. Walker and others with the straightening comb and, and, and how do you look a certain way so that you become more acceptable. We know about the challenges in the Black community in terms of the paper bag concept. If you look any darker than a paper bag, you know, sometimes people would kind of put you to the side. Yep. Um, so, so we've internalized you know, some of that racism, yeah, the, the racial animosity. So this brings to mind someone who purportedly had come from India. He was the son of a Brahmin, a very wealthy uh, aristocratic uh, family in India, who married a French opera singer, white opera singer. And they produced this child. Uh, and his name was Korla Pandit. And so... He had a great education, was a, really a prodigy of his time. And eventually he rose to the ranks of international acclaim and was able to garner his own television program in 1951. 
And his program actually ran for 900 episodes. Wow. And so the idea of an Indian American having his own program, he would be at an organ. I think it was a Hammond B organ. And he would play and he would look and stare. He never said one word. He would stare into the camera. The camera would zoom in on his eyes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there'd be some kind of like a spiral, you know, like a hypnotizing effect. Mm -hmm. And he would just look lovingly into the camera. And so apparently he wanted more of a share, you know, after 900 episodes, he wanted to have a greater share, greater equity in the program Mm -hmm. because he's bringing in, you know, a lot of attention, a lot of money. And uh, it didn't quite work out the way that he, he felt. So he decided to walk, you know, he said, well, I'm, I'm well known. And he did start another program a little bit later on, but it didn't have the same oomph as, as that particular program. Mm -hmm. So his name again was Corla Pandit. But the interesting thing about that is, is that prior to becoming known as Corla Pandit, he had been known as Juan Rolando. Juan Rolando? Wait a minute. That's a Latino <laughs> <Yeah>. name. <laughs> and so apparently what had happened is that um, he was playing tune, becoming very popular in, in Los Angeles. But then the Zoot Suit riots started taking place. A lot of that's when the wait uh, the zoot suit riots were a real thing. Yes, I only know about the zoot suit riots from that song back in like the late nineties. This group called the Cherry Pop and Daddies did. There was a film and there was also a play that I saw on Broadway, and it was called Zoot Suit. And that story basically chronicalizes the way that Chicanos were attacked. You know, vatos yeah. were attacked by white sailors. You know, during the Second World War. And so basically it was racial discrimination. There was the Zoot Suit riots that were taking place. That is incredible. I had no idea. Yeah. Like the only recognition I have of the name Zoot Suit Riot is a song that definitely doesn't say anything about that history. And there's nothing about any of that? Not that I can recall. But the only thing I know about that song is they say Zoot Suit Riot, throw back a bottle of beer. Wow. I want to comb through your long black hair. Yeah, that, that's that's the only thing I know about the Zoot Suit Riot or knew about the Zoot Suit Riot, not knowing that they were real things. Wow. Be like somebody making a song called Tulsa Race Massacre, and it's about getting drunk and partying at a bar or something like that. Yeah, it's not even, it's barely a side note. That's crazy. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. So it, it was it was it was really uh, quite something. And so, you know, so he was sort of navigating all of that going on at the same time that he was known as Juan Rolando. And uh, he had married, by the way, uh, a woman who was a, a, an artist for Walt Disney, for the Disney Studios. And they had to get married in Tijuana, Mexico, because in those days it was illegal for black and white folks to get married. Wow. Certainly in that part of the United States, I think it might have been in the United States in general, but certainly in that part of the United States. Yeah, that's that's what he was um, faced with. Wow. But here's what, what, what was very interesting. This character, Juan Rolando, was actually born as John Roland Red in St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> he just got layers of... The light-skinned African-American. Wow. Who morphed into Juan Rolando, <laughs> married a woman who was white, in Mexico, uh-huh. continued to become very popular on the supper club set in Los Angeles. And at a certain point, now Hollywood, they call it Tinseltown. You, know, mm-hmm. you, you, you change your name, you change who you are, you become something else. Mm-hmm. All right. 
So they apparently devised this idea of creating this character called Corla Pandit. <laughs> and he never broke that role. Not even off camera or anything? Not even off camera. He stayed in that role. He wow. wore a turban with a jewel hanging in the center. Cover his afro. <laughs> <laughs> I think his hair was... was, was Probably, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but he never spoke on camera. And also, but the fact that he had a turban was, was a bit of an aberration because that would typically be associated with Sikhs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, not with yeah. somebody who was Hindu or had right. a Hindu background. Right. By the way, when he was Juan Rolando, he would run into people like Duke Ellington. And Duke Ellington would look at him and he'd look at Duke. And I'm sure that there was a knowing glance yeah. between both of them. <laughs> yeah. I think people, people knew, but they kept it quiet. <laughs> They're sure like, go ahead, bro, just... keep doing your thing, man. Keep bro. I see you, bro. Right, <laughs> you know? like they may not, but we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. and and that's how it is. You know, it's like it's like the nod. You know, like when you yeah. you walk in past and you see another black person, they see you. You know, and you kind of give each other the nod, like you know. Yeah. I so I just thought it was fascinating that that among the early pioneers of African American pioneers in television, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Rolando John Roland Red, whose father, by the way, was a was a Baptist preacher. Wow! And his he had a fa- family of musicians there. He wasn't the only one. So none of his family snitched on him or anything. No, they, they all kept it quiet. Y- you know, he would come in, see them, mm-hmm. chill. In fact, most of them moved out to to uh, California where wow. he was. I mean, it's unfortunate that he had to essentially hide his identity of being black. Yeah. Or at least that he didn't feel comfortable enough in at least sharing that at some point during his career. Like, how did it get known that he was actually John Red and not Corla? Some research, some some researchers after he died, there was more research, more scrutiny about his life and who he was and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think it was uh, one of the writers was uh, R.J. Smith, Rolling Stone magazine, Hmm. I think, who wrote a bit about him. Wow. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think that people did know. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of hard to keep completely quiet. Yeah. But there was so there was a certain complicity there, almost like don't ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Rock Hudson, you know, big Hollywood star. But he had to keep in the closet the fact that he was um, gay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting the kind of choices that people make. Uh, to assimilate, to get in, to yeah. get on, as it were. Uh, and uh, and so Corla Pandit was one of those uh, lesser-known people for uh, sure. who pretended to be something that he was not and stayed in that role for his entire life. Wow. That's, yeah. it's, it's like tragic and almost like a middle finger to the system at the same yeah. time. That's right. And, yeah. and what's interesting also is that when you see, and he's donning this headpiece, mm-hmm. Uh, and he's wearing these, quote unquote, Middle Eastern or, or Indian attire. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he's playing the organ, too, and that he would play it percussively, mm-hmm. you know, from time to time. Put a little bit of the classical flourish in there and then play it like he's playing drums. Right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. just unbelievable. And I, and I, I started thinking about people like uh, Sun Ra, you know, mm-hmm. talking about Sun Ra earlier. Mm-hmm. And Sun Ra, you know, wearing his robes and the 
Afrocentrism and outer space and sort of being a musical godfather of uh, Afrofuturism and that yeah. sort of thing, you know, which hope opened up the door to Parliament Funkadelic and, yep. and Earth, Wind and & Fire. Yep. And people on the kalimba, like, um, you know, Phil Coran out of Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, who's one of the people who helped Maurice White learn to play the, the kalimba. Yeah. All of these, the, the whole Afrocentrism, the, the uh, Afro arts movement that was taking place, Black arts movement in, uh, in Chicago, mm-hmm. among other places. Mm-hmm. I mean, people saying that we're no longer going to accept these quote unquote government names and so forth, or mm-hmm. we're going to self-identify. We're going to create our own sense of self and reality. Mm-hmm. And we're redefining the terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these individuals did it. He had to do it in one way. Sun Ra did it in another way. Mm-hmm. And there were others as well. By the way, Corla Pandit is considered a godfather of um, exotic music. <laughs> and that was, was very popular from the 1940s onward. Yeah, what would they classify as exotic music? Because if he's pulling from a faux Indian and a faux Latin experience, mm-hmm. that is produced is like seems to be like it would be a, be a hybrid of so many different things. Like what what was then that music if they're classifying it as exotic? Well, th- that's the thing. I think it was rather uh, invented. It was all invented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, people from India who'd listen to some of the music that he was playing didn't recognize. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a minute, what? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, it makes perfect sense. The guy's just BSing, but pulling it off. But the thing is, is what that what he was doing was also reflective of you know some of the kind of music, this exotic, foreign-sounding music of the South Sea Islands, you know, the Pacific, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So he had this sort of lilting, swaying kind of groove. People like Les Baxter, he was another composer and musician who was playing this kind of, of music. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is um, really interesting, this idea of a personal transformation, of assimilation into society, of transforming society through your own sense of agency. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> Thanks for... Dropping that knowledge. I had no idea about Corla Pandit. I learned about Hazel Scott. Uh, I learned about the Zoot Suit Riots. And I'm definitely going to be diving more into that. Uh, just learning about that on my own. But that, that was really, really dope. I appreciate that, Dad. Hey, I, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to share some of that information w- along with you. Most definitely, Dad. I'll talk to you soon. I love you. All right. Love you too, Pop. Thanks. Thanks.